Down Syndrome Queensland are the peak body for intellectual disability in Queensland. We drive change, support inclusion and are on a quest for equality so that people with intellectual disabilities can take their rightful place as valuable members of the community. Down Syndrome Queensland also provides practical and emotional support, comfort and opportunities to people with intellectual disability, their families and support networks, particularly in regional areas. DSQ supports an inclusive environment for people with an intellectual disability, which allows them to live their best lives. We believe it is important to respect the rights of parents to choose the development path that is best for their loved one. DSQ is here to support them along the way. To find out more about how you can help, to volunteer or to support the work of Down Syndrome Queensland, go to downsyndrome.org.au forward slash QLD. We acknowledge the First Nations people as the traditional custodians of the land we are on today. We acknowledge and pay respect to all elders past, present and emerging. In the Future podcast is an exciting way of sharing members' stories of opportunities, challenges and provide support and expert advice for Down Syndrome community. Down Syndrome Queensland's vision is to support, advocate for empower people with Down Syndrome to take their rightful places as valuable and contributing members of their community both now into the future. The Early Childhood Approach is the part of the National Disability Insurance Scheme that is specifically for children aged 0 to 6 years who meet the eligibility requirements. The Early Childhood Approach was developed based on evidence-based research with the help of leading experts in early childhood intervention. The approach supports best practice in early childhood intervention because it helps the child and family to build their capacity and supports greater inclusion in community and everyday settings, meaning each child will be provided with opportunities to grow and learn. It is about giving children and their families the right supports to enable them to have the best possible start in life. In today's episode, we hear from Daisy Prasad, a senior physiotherapist, and Kelly Radler, team leader who work with the Benevolent Society, who are the early childhood partner for the NDIS across the Brisbane, Moreton Bay and Logan regions. Today we're going to have a little bit of a talk about the early childhood approach. We've got lots of questions today ladies, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us here Tanya. Okay, we'll just dive straight in and we will probably get all over the place today, but I'm looking forward to hearing more about the early childhood approach and just early intervention in general. And I guess that's the first thing we would like to talk about really is what exactly is early intervention? Because for a lot of our families, when they first have a baby um, who's given a diagnosis of Down syndrome, they're thrown into a world that they often have never really known much about. So I wondered if you could just start by talking about early intervention and how you understand that to be. 
Absolutely. So when we think about the term early intervention, we have to think really broadly. You brought up that great example of a child with Down syndrome and their early intervention journey might look like the family being notified before the child is even born that the child will have this diagnosis. And then once mm -hmm. the child is born, setting the family up with the right support so that they're in the best position possible to support their child's development throughout their lifespan. And so we call that early intervention because what the research shows us is that the earlier that we can put those supports in place, the better uh, chance that we have of uh, helping the child to reach their future potential. So mm -hmm. that's what we think of in terms of, um, you know, the, the younger ones that we're supporting. But also when we think about early intervention, we can also think about adults who might receive a diagnosis later in life. They might have, for example, had a stroke and early intervention can, of course, uh, refer to the set of supports we will implement at that time mm. um, to make sure, again, that that adult still reaches their best future potential as well. Lovely. And I guess that would apply to um, in terms of if an, any additional diagnosis was made later in a person's life. Um, I'm just thinking people with Down syndrome sometimes are more likely to go on and be diagnosed with a secondary condition, um, something like ADHD or autism spectrum disorder, um, a range of coexisting health conditions or maybe hearing impairment. Um, yeah, great example. That's right. Mm -hmm. So early intervention can refer to very early in the baby's life um, because of that known diagnosis. And then again, um, several years later, there might be another period of early mm -hmm. intervention if there is a new diagnosis that comes in. And mm -hmm. then we'll look at what is the best practice approach around supporting that baby given the the co or the second diagnosis at that time yes. wonderful thank you <laughs> um i guess a question that i get asked a lot when i'm linking with new parents around the state is how early should we start early intervention you know um sometimes you know families have a real whirlwind um, few months when bub is first born, particularly if there's any surgeries involved or lengthy hospital stays. Um, and they're usually highly anxious that they want to give their baby the best start in life. But sometimes they're still adjusting to the news of the diagnosis or they might not be even living in their usual um, town if they've been brought down for surgeries, etc. So I guess what is that best practice approach that you mentioned earlier in terms of how early should early intervention start? You've raised a really couple of great points, Tanya. So early intervention absolutely can start very, very early on. So it can be as early as birth. So the child might only be a couple of days on and they could, for example, get referred to our service straight away. Um, but it depends on so many other factors in reality. As you mentioned, uh, is, is the family and the child ready to start that journey at that time? Um, they might actually, their priority might be um, sort of understanding their child's diagnosis and working through uh, the, the emotional impact that that will have on their family and the thoughts that they have about their child's life moving forward. So that can be something that might possibly need to be the focus before they're referred on to any support services. Mm -hmm. But the option is there to start the intervention um, as, as early as the family feels. Other mm -hmm. factors to consider is who else is involved in support. They might still be accessing services from the hospital, for example. Mm -hmm. So again, it just depends on when the family is ready to engage in a new service. Um, and that, and that can really depend on, you know, time, place, who else is involved in that family's life. Mm, mm, yeah. Mm, that's great. Thank you. Um, you mentioned before about hospital and whether those supports are still in place. And I guess this wasn't one of the specific questions I had sort of 
discussed with you, but we do sometimes find, particularly for children who've got really um, specialised feeding needs and um, they might come home from hospital or still be in hospital um, on a nasogastric tube, for instance, sometimes it's a little bit blurry between, you know, the hospital staff being involved and when that transfers over to a community team. So I guess, yeah. 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 And I guess that's a classic case that we can think about where, the answer is really variable and can go either way. We can think about the scenario where um, the child has a number of medical complexities and as such there might be an inpatient at the hospital mm-hmm. and in those cases it might be uh, they might be best supported in that inpatient hospital setting mm-hmm. where they do have all their medical specialist team around them as well mm-hmm. as the allied health um professionals Mm. so that baby could be supported by the hospital for just say six to 12 months prior to discharge and then they might be referred to the Mm. early childhood partner to take over support from there Mm. Um, or in other cases if the baby is medically stable they may be discharged you know very soon after after birth and they can be referred um, to our service even before discharge occurs Mm. Mm. so it can really go either way and we really uh, we base that decision on what the health professionals are recommending and again we base that decision on what is the parents preference as Mm. well what really suits the family best in their Mm. individual context in some instances um the hospital won't discharge a young person until they do have an NDIS plan Mm. so in that way once they're discharged and home with the NDIS plan the funding for like the nasogastric and Mm. perhaps some nurse training for other informal Mm. supports Mm. in the people's life comes out of NDIS funding. So Mm. there's often times where we make sure that's all in place before the little person comes home. And do you mean comes home physically from the hospital or discharge? No, sometimes physically, yeah. Yeah, But, yeah, yeah. case-specific, different for everyone. But, yeah, there's certainly cases where that is is the case. And in that case, Kelly, like say a little one was um, either they gave birth in Brisbane or they were flown to Brisbane or or a large tertiary hospital soon after birth, would the the partner doing that planning be the one back where they live or would it be the Brisbane-based partner? No, yeah, so it will actually be... So if they were in Toowoomba, for example, and yep. birth and everything's happened here in Brisbane, they yeah. would be supported by the, the Toowoomba, so Toowoomba. United Care in yeah. that situation. Correct. Great. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that because I think that is confusing for a lot of families too, especially if they obviously know ahead of time that baby will be born with Down syndrome, that the birth has to be particularly um, planned and prepared for. And yeah. these are a lot of the questions that go through people's minds before Bob is born. And, yeah. and being the partner in Brisbane, often a lot of time that first sort of referral will come to us from the mm-hmm. hospital mm-hmm. and then we'll do a bit of a warm handover straight to that partner and support mm-hmm. that connection and process. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Makes it as, as um, parent-centred as and oh, family-centred totally. as possible. Yeah. That's yeah. great. Um, I guess one thing that is a little bit unique, I think, for our families is that they often know before birth or soon after birth that their little person will be born with a disability or has a disability, whereas some of the families that I imagine you um, engage in planning with, you know, it might have been several years' process of collecting information and making observations and noticing a child isn't meeting their developmental milestones. Um, But for our families, they often are very aware, you know, sometimes from as early as around 12 weeks um, gestation. So I guess are there any different sort of things to keep in mind? It's, It's difficult when there's a newborn baby, a newborn baby, no matter how um, well or, or not, like maybe I'll rephrase that, when a baby is born, whether they're born with a disability or not or whether they're born with a medical condition or not, yes. 
all newborns require an awful lot of work. Yes. <laughs> um, and they're completely reliant on the adults in their life to meet their needs. But if your baby is born and you know from birth that they have a disability, is there anything different in terms of how planners would or child development specialists would approach that planning conversation? Because I know if you, like often that planning can talk around the child's developmental um where they're at at this point in time against the, you know, usually accepted developmental milestones. But for a little one who's just completely newborn, um, probably all newborns, you know, are at that kind of baseline level. Mm -hmm. Um, I might start answering this question and then hand over to Kel for some further Mm -hmm. info. And I definitely understand um, what you're saying. And there is that complexity there Then when we get uh, any type of um, little bubba or baby referred to our service. In terms of our assessment process, Mm -hmm. it is really difficult to determine when the baby is young Mm -hmm. uh, how functionally impacted that child will be later in their life. Mm -hmm. Um, Thank you. That's exactly how I was (laughs) going to pitch that question. (laughs) Because as you you say, and and as we all know, little babies are completely dependent on their parents or Mm -hmm. carers for all of their, Mm -hmm. um, you know, routines throughout the day. Mm -hmm. So... At that early stage, um, we do to some degree rely on the health professionals or medical practitioners involved in the child's life at that time Mm. to ideally make some predictions based on any Mm. co-current medical diagnoses that the child has Mm. or other health conditions that might be known at that time, you know, during the birthing Mm. process, if there was any complications, for example, or really early in the child's life that might help the health professionals to predict, um, you know, AT supports that might be required so any um, assistive mm. technology or any you know uh, nasogastric tubing mm. or any, mm. any other type of specific supports that need to be in place while the baby is still mm. really young mm. um, but beyond that we would really go on the evidence based around that known diagnosis so if we mm. think about down syndrome we know that there can potentially be elements that a physio speechy and an ot mm. as well as other health professionals can support with mm. and so we'll try to link in the professionals that we know can be the most helpful mm. early on mm. and, and as I said we'll, we'll always um, liaise with the doctors or the pediatricians and anyone else at the hospital mm. um, to sort of find out how else um, can we support this child mm. and family early on and then we'll keep um, in it will keep linking closely with the family in those first couple of months or whenever they've been mm. referred to our service to make sure the supports that we've put into place mm. are continuing to meet the needs of that child and family because we mm. know that you know what a baby needs when they're three months old might mm. look very different to what they need one year later but mm. it's not always so easy to, pre- to predict at no. that three month mark so yeah. we can make some predictions but we do sort of ongoing um, assessment if you like and keep in touch with the okay. um, health supports around. That's really helpful to know because I know I've had a couple of families in recent months who've got newborn babies and um, in the end the funding that was allocated was really only for one or two goals and obviously and these were little babies who'd had significant surgeries immediately after Mm. birth. So we definitely know there will be, you know, at least those three disciplines of allied health therapy required in that first year. So Mm. it's good to know that potentially they could have that conversation with their key worker or child development specialist and say, look, we're finding this amount of funding is not 
going to meet their needs. Absolutely. And sometimes it can be the amount of funding or sometimes it can be a discussion around the types of funding. Mm. So, and that's really the role of the key worker when you're linked, once you're linked with our service, you'll have Mm. that identified person that will keep keep in touch with you and make sure that your Mm. NDIS support or your Mm. early support, just whatever services that you're accessing through Mm. um, the Medellin Society Early Childhood Approach is, is definitely meeting the needs in real time. That's great to know. And that's just reassuring, I think, for families to hear that that first year is such an unknown. Um, Very variable. One child with Down syndrome can present very, very differently to another little bubble with Down syndrome. So what one family needs can Mm. look completely different to Mm. what another family needs. Mm. So we really try to take an individualised approach where possible. That's great. And in such, each plan would look completely different. Absolutely. And I think that's something we do spend a lot of time saying to families just this time around, because you have that support, you may not need it next time or the supports look different or yeah. Um, And that, that is best practice, isn't it? To re-look at that little person's needs in a unique, specific way, each review. And I imagine that's why in the ECI space or ECA space, as it's known now, that it is 12 monthly reviews and not the two or three years that we see in the older part of the scheme. It has stretched to two years now. So has we it? do have an option okay. for 24 months. Yep. So the good um, the good thing with that is a lot of families do feel like that every 12 months it does bring a lot of anxiety and a lot mm. of work to collect all that information and evidence yep. that you have to present for your plan reassessment. Yep. So you do have the option to stretch it to 24 months, but you also know within that time, shall anything change, mm. you can you can raise um, like a change of circumstance. So basically it's not prescribing a 12-month review now. Um, If if you feel like you need to do that in 15 months, Mm. then then you can Mm. trigger that. If it's six months, you can trigger that. And so would that be about, yeah, the participant or their family member triggering that request or potentially through those check-ins, Daisy, that you talked about, that might be the time to raise that. Either or, yeah. Yeah. Okay, great. Otherwise, at the point of the scheduled plan reassessment, someone would be in contact Yes. Prior. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's great to know. I guess the other thing um, that we often spend a bit of time explaining to new families is the types of support they would see in an early childhood plan. Because I think for people who are familiar with the NDIS, they're sometimes um, thinking about transport funding and support workers and a whole lot Mm. of range of things that aren't necessarily relevant to a newborn baby's life. Um, I wondered if you could just talk about in general, knowing that every single person is different, what you are likely to see in, in a early childhood funded plan. Yeah, so in the early childhood approach, the funding, um, as we said, is definitely individualised to that family circumstance. But what we um, typically see is that there's funding toward capacity building supports. Mm -hmm. So that really refers to money toward allied health therapy out in the Mm -hmm. community. Mm -hmm. And so um, during the um, funding uh, calculation process that's done jointly with the NDAA, the parent, as well as the early childhood partner, you end up with a certain number of hours of allied health therapy that will be within your budget and then it's up to the parent um, using their choice and control to go and choose which service providers in the community they would like to access. So whether that might be physiotherapy, occupational therapy or speech therapy, for example, um, 
And I guess the other thing that I want to mention is within capacity building, we also consider assessment hours that an allied health professional might need to do assessment towards assistive technology of any type, whether that was um, AT to support a child's posture, like a specialised seating system or even a special type of walker, or whether it was um, some of those dietetic supports such as nasogastric feeding support and that sort of thing that the child might need. So... um, some of those hours are assessment and therapy hours in that traditional Mm. sense and Mm. some of them um, additional hours might go toward that assessment Mm. for AT. So capacity building can be used flexibly um, as well um, in terms of where that therapy happens. Mm. So the therapist can come to the home and you might need to factor in the travel that that Mm. will cost. So we talk Mm. about it in hours. Um, that's just like a measure, but mm. you can use that money. Like you might have half hour appointments mm. and you might go to a clinic or you might have it based somewhere out in the community. Mm. Um, so that's the capacity building. And Daisy mentioned um, assessment hours for AT. So that is also in capacity Part building. Of that pool. Yeah. But there has been a new element um, that some people might or might not be familiar with, and that's the mid cost budget for AT. Mm-hmm. So let's say it's predicted that this little person is going to need some assistive technology. We know that. We have that information from the provider, but we don't have a robust assessment or quote yet, and we have a price estimate. Um, We are able to include a budget for that AT. So rather than go through the traditional approach of having the assessments done, sent back to the NDIS for consideration to have Mm. AT included mid-plan. In some instances with the right information, we can actually have that included from the get-go in the beginning. So that will fall under the capital budget where all AT generally is, Mm -hmm. but a provider can actually dip into that um, capital budget for capacity building. So they can dip into that to do their assessments. They can dip Uh. into that to their trials. So that's really useful to know, I guess, in terms of at theatre original point of doing up the plan reassessment, you may not have anticipated a particular amount of hours being needed for that assessment. Um, yeah. I guess that's giving that flexibility. That's right. Um, so if we have information early on, say the physio saying this little person will require AFOs during the mm. life of this plan, mm. the planner might just reach out to the physio, for example, just ask a couple more questions to ensure that we can include that in the plan now so a little person gets that when they need it mm. and, and not when, you know, it's it's gone mm. through multiple touch points to get that funding included. So that sounds like it's going to really speed up the assistive technology process moving forward. <laughs> yes, that's the goal. And we're already seeing that turnaround wow. time. That's yeah, amazing. And people getting stuff they need amazing. straight away. Amazing. And then that's the third budget. So we spoke about capacity building, um, which is quite um, heavily funded in um, the early childhood space. Yes, opposed to the the older space. Yeah. Yeah. ECA. Um, But then there's um, the core budget. So Mm. that's any sort of like consumables that go along with things. So your nasogastric tubes, for example, Mm. come from there. Um, Any money you need to contribute to Hearing Australia, like... um, I think it's a hundred dollar a year like a co-payment co-payment yep, yep that's funded in there right um yeah and any of those yep. other little things yep. and in some circumstances if there's support required in the home mm-hmm. um that's in the uh core budget yeah as, well. as an in-home support in-home kind of cost yeah. and i think um in some circumstances where I've seen other a different type of core support included for children with Down syndrome has been if Auslan is the recommended form of, like if they also have a hearing impairment, yes. um, it, it's my understanding that 
is something that would go in the core budget, but only if there's a whole lot of supporting evidence and quotes required and Correct. things like yes. that. Correct, yes, yes, exactly. So that would be allocated in that budget. Mm-hmm. Of course, in your capacity building budget with your speech therapist, mm-hmm. if that's something that they're trained to do and deliver, mm-hmm. you could also be um, using that, using that yep. in there yep. in those sessions. Yeah, okay. Now that's really great to know. And I think it's good to break this down because it is so very confusing for families, particularly that first time around, yes. and especially if they've never had any connection with the world of disability prior to having a little baby. So, yeah, yeah that's great. Um, and they can people can always go back to their key worker, can't they, with lots of questions, you know, during yeah. the life of the plan in, yeah. in terms of using that Yes, budget. we encourage it because mm-hmm. when we see a plan that's underutilised, We know that there's a need for that little person and it's not actually being tapped into. But there's Mm. a lot of reasons why it might Mm. not be, right? Mm. Um, Waiting lists, for starters. (laughs) Life happens, waiting lists. And little person's goals can change. Like we can't predict, we can can Mm. set it up. Mm. But a little person, you know, might be, Mm. you know, change Mm. that priority Mm. somewhere along there. So there'll be a lot of reasons, but we definitely Mm. encourage that communication back and forth so we can Mm. absolutely make sure we're supporting Mm. that utilisation and understanding also why it's not being utilised. And it's really important to mention here that if you don't use it, it doesn't. I was just about to say to you, this is the million-dollar question I get all of the time. I need to use it. What else can I use it on? Yeah, it's like a mantra. It's If you don't use it, it doesn't mean that you lose Lose it. it. It's not like private health insurance. Correct. Yes, yes, yes. I'm sorry. I'm so grateful that you raised that because I was thinking to myself, how do I slip that in there without putting you on the spot? Because it is, honestly, I can't believe even for brand new parents who, you know, are new, completely new to this world, they're hearing that. And I, I'm i not really sure where that messaging comes from, but we really do need to close that down. We do. I think a lot of it comes from um, just in the community and a lot of social media. You hear mm. one person's experience mm. that might be someone who's 55 and, mm. you know, all everyone has different circumstances, but everyone can kind of link that back to themselves because everyone mm. has that one thing in common, right? Mm. They all have an NDIS plan. So yeah. people, yeah, yeah you, can, you can get quite frightened um, reading some of that yeah. stuff and thinking yeah. that it applies. Yeah. Um, but I can tell you here and now that it, it absolutely doesn't. Thank you. Yeah. It's really good for people to hear that through the mouths of the people from, <laughs> yes, the, from that actual body themselves. Yeah. yeah. We yeah. want to understand why it wasn't utilised just yeah. so we can name that. And and, yeah. that, and that's how we build traction with things changing out there in the community. If it's wait mm. lists and mm. for certain things, mm. well, then we know, like we see it with support workers, right? Mm. That's The market is so thin. Yes. You know, so Having we a support can, worker in the child space is a huge... Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we do now see the government doing things about you know training you know opening Mm. new training for people to become Mm. support workers and making that look a little bit more enticing so Mm. you know when when we hear from the families why a budget's not being utilized that information Mm. does go somewhere Mm. yeah Mm. that's really helpful to know because I think that yeah as you say it's even for children with Down syndrome for instance they are immunocompromised and so they are often way more at risk of infection so Mm. it's quite often they cannot get to therapy because they're unwell or they're back in hospital or um it's not at all because they don't want the family don't want to be accessing that support absolutely and telehealth works for some little ones but if they're very very young it's Mm. or they're just not able to stay engaged for an hour on an on a screen at a very young age it's just not yeah and and Mm. i think the nds understands all of these complexities Mm. so they designed the scheme to be really flexible Mm. in that way that Mm. you don't have to use all of the money by a certain time and it doesn't get taken away and you know and as we said before if you feel at any time that you know your budget or your nds plan is not meeting the needs of your child and family you can let your key worker know and that triggers Mm. another 
entire mm. conversation around well, mm. how else can we support you? What else can we mm. put in place? Mm. Um, and, and that uh, conversation can either be triggered by the parent or the carer or it might be triggered through the health professionals involved externally. Yeah, especially you know? if so a they child... might be letting the parent know, yeah. hey, let's chat with your early childhood partner because yeah. there's, there's a certain item that we really are recommending for your child mm. that at the moment um, mm. you're not receiving through your NDIS plan. So that can also mm. occur. And one that we see pretty commonly for our little ones is they actually might not have come home from hospital on a nasogastric tube, but somewhere in that first year or two mm-hmm. of life, yeah. they, you know, their growth might you know, that yeah. they may have that need to transition onto it. And obviously yeah. that consumables budget would not have been no, in their original that's plan. Right. So. And and as we said earlier, sometimes there's no real way to predict. Mm. And so you always, you might be given your initial NDIS plan, but, and that's also why you have that key worker assigned mm. to you so that you have a go-to person to go back mm. to them and say, hey, I've just spoken with my pediatrician or I've just spoken with my physiotherapist mm. and here's a letter or a report from them and they're mm. recommending X, Y, and Z. So can we look into how how to put those supports into mm. place, whether they're recommending a nasogastro tube now or whether now the physio might mm. be recommending a specialised type of walker so mm. that your child can gain some independence with uh, standing, for example. So yeah. once yeah. we have those reports from the mm. health professionals, we can certainly yeah. implement those Change and move that. forward. Yeah. That's great. Okay, we, I guess I wanted to talk too about... Um, what families can do if they're really unsure. I, I've had a lot of families often look at that first plan when it comes through and they just freak and they yeah. go, oh, my goodness, I, I actually don't know what I am and I'm not allowed to do. Um, and we always do encourage them to go back to their key worker, but for lots of reasons they feel too scared to or they just mm. are embarrassed to. or Like where else would you recommend if they're feeling really unsure about what they should and shouldn't be using funding on? Are there other like online resources, like are there particular booklets on the NDIS site that you think are good for them to use? Or Yeah, I think when it comes to um, knowing what you can and can't spend your funding on mm. um, and if for some reason you don't feel comfortable picking up the phone, and that can be understandable at times, there is a resource on the public NDIS website. I encourage you, whether you're self-managed or not, Mm. um, if you're plan managed or agency managed, on the public website, if you search up um, self-management checklist or self-management, it's actually going to link you to a bit of a matrix. It's kind of five questions. And if you can answer yes to each Mm. five questions, you can feel pretty safe. That that's something you could ask or claim yeah Yeah. absolutely so I don't know if there's something I can do after this so we can put that link we can definitely put that in our show notes that would be really helpful um because I think that is um the hardest thing like I think probably where I spend the biggest amount of time and and families hate it but I say to them if you can get your head around the reasonable and necessary section the criteria that those six key areas that if you can understand that it meets all of those needs even if it wasn't specifically named in your plan then you can understand that that's yeah that's right because there is a lot of fear on people particularly when they are self-managing around oh my goodness if I get this wrong or if I the another common one is they often claim from the wrong category and it's super yeah. easy to do especially if you're so on the portal late at night or on the app late at yeah. night and um people think it's going to implode and we just try to say it's okay just talk to your key worker that's right mm. and that's definitely what we would recommend like ideally if you are unsure mm. you could absolutely contact your key worker and if for whatever reason you know you don't feel comfortable doing that you can still contact your early childhood partner and have a you know an initial discussion with somebody and make a request to say that you'd like more support understand 
finding the reasonable and necessary criteria. Mm -hmm. As Kelly mentioned, um, whether NDIS will fund something or not always comes back to that reasonable Mm. and necessary criteria and the legislation that underpins Mm. whether the NDIS should pay for a certain item or service. So the website is a great place to start Mm. because that's the public information available to everybody. Um, But in most cases, your early childhood partner will be able to provide you some more detailed and individualised information for your family around whether something would be justified as Mm. RNN or reasonable Mm. and necessary for Mm. your particular child because, again, it depends on the individual circumstance on the family as as to, for example, whether or not in-home support might be funded. So something like Mm. that can be a little Mm. bit contentious in some cases. So some support or a service that's funded for one family might not be reasonable and necessary for another family. And it all comes down to it, isn't it? Like sometimes the wording of those six sort of key areas, and one of which is that you know, reason, um, informal support networks and what's reasonable yeah. to expect of them. You know, what is reasonable with a three-year-old compared mm. to a thirty-three-year-old yeah. adult child to live? Like that's where it's really important, I yeah. think, to understand that it is subjective. It's open to interpretation, but we have to look at the bigger picture. And like yeah. you say, one family's circumstances might be vastly different to another family's. And yeah. and the two children's disability types and the functional impact of those is different as well. So, yeah. Yeah. And you can look at it two ways. So the plan gets funded based on reasonable and necessary, right? Mm-hmm. But then you get your plan and you open it and you're like, okay, so this money was considered reasonable and necessary. Mm-hmm. But then you start drilling down and you think, well, it hasn't actually said that I can go to play therapy with my CB, does that mean that's reasonable and necessary? So I can see how it can get really Mm, tricky. And no one, no one is expected to know Mm. the Section 34 legislation reasonable and necessary. There is just no way. So this this little checklist I mentioned, it it is just really snappy, really quick. Is this related to my disability? Will this help me achieve my goals? That's two yeah. that I can remember off the top of my yeah, head. Yeah. But it really is safe and effective and beneficial and evidence-based and all that sort of stuff. I think there's, or there used to be. Yeah. That, <laughs> One of those. Yes, yeah, yeah. exactly. But I think the questions are even. Um, and is it best funded through the NDAS as opposed most to appro- another yeah. service, yeah. for yeah. example? Is it yeah. best funded by Queensland Health yeah. as opposed to the NDIS? And that's the classic question, isn't it? And I always use this as the most obvious example is glasses. Like like most yes. little ones with Down syndrome, you know, well, I'll always get their vision checked because we know that can be a really common um, co associated condition Mm -hmm. for people with Down syndrome Uh, but many people in the community wear glasses and so that's not something that's funded by the NDIS and there is a Medicare rebate associated with all of that and so it's most appropriately funded but and most people are really understanding of all that when they break it down but Mm um yeah I think sometimes it's that's where that confusion can set in for a family Mm. because they're saying oh the doctor has said he needs glasses because because of yeah 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 it is very confusing it is really empathetic with that we know (laughs) how great it can get it sometimes I think um what was helpful and I must check if it's still there but recently there was the would we fund it page added Mm. to the NDIS they're brilliant and they're growing and they're growing and there's going to be an ECA specific one soon particularly Mm. around that capacity building great support as well so so we'll pop that link in the show notes too because I think those two things that you've shared would just be super helpful when you're really navigating there is a third one I'll give you as well again I can't think of the link off the top of my head you can email me after this I'll email it to you but it does tell you um what the NDIS is um responsible for funding and what might be other service streams Mm, and it really breaks things down like for example like 
um, yeah, it, it goes into early childhood through to mm. mental health. And education, to, I'd education. imagine, and all yes. that stuff. Yeah, because yeah. that is tricky. When little mm. ones transition over to school, that yeah. is that is yeah. a really massive transition for any little person. So, Absolutely. Yeah. And, awesome. and blurred lines between what should Department yeah. of Education yep. fund as opposed to NDS. Similarly, blurred lines can occur between Queensland Health and the yes. NDIS. So yes. you will still end up with circumstances in which you just don't know yeah. should this be funded through the hospital yep. or the NDS and that's when it is best to go to your key worker and just raise mm. that as a mm. point of discussion and that will sort of guide you Absolutely. through there. Yeah, yeah. No, that's really, really helpful. We'll definitely put those links in. Just looking at my list of questions. I think we've kind of segued all over the place. Um, Tanya, one more thing that yeah. we commonly get from families, a question that we get from families is around, you know, will the NDS fund um, assessments that might lead to a diagnosis for my child? So mm. will the NDS fund mm. a paediatrician to come and assess my child and mm. potentially provide a, a mm. diagnosis of um autism spectrum disorder level mm. two for example and and that can be really confusing um but we always try to just clarify whenever we get the chance that we don't fund for that type no. of assessment those medical assessments will yeah. still sit with you know queensland health absolutely because um, so it's new information too right yeah. so if, yeah. you, if it's not a diagnosed disability that you currently have then your current funds are related to that particular disability Correct. so yeah. I think yeah. yeah I'm glad you brought that up um because we know that therapists or speech therapists for instance might do regular assessments throughout the time with them and sometimes that in from that information comes more information that they may come back to you and say yes. maybe you need to see the pediatrician and show them this assessment That's because right. yeah. um we think this might mean, yeah, yes. <laughs> but it's, yeah, not for the NDIS to diagnose oh, that. Yeah, absolutely. On that note, though, I think um, it's worth seeing as we've gone into that space, when we do have a little person, for example, with Down syndrome and autism or Down syndrome and, and a hearing impairment that's quite significant, um, there is often that debate around what should be listed as their primary disability. Um, is that just something that people should, when they have their plan reassessment, if there is a new diagnosis, yeah. for instance, they should make their key worker aware of that information or? Uh, absolutely mm. so i guess if there if the um if the earliest diagnosis is down syndrome alone then they might meet the eligibility criteria or meet the access criteria mm. based on that diagnosis alone mm. but then later if they were to get a second diagnosis at any time even mm. if it's not um at the end of the 12 months or 24 mm. months at any time you can again just let your early childhood partner know specifically mm. the key worker and we always like to keep the profiles up to date Mm. Um, and then as the years go by, we also include in the profile any new allied health reports that come through that describe, you know, functional impairment and mm. recommended supports and that sort of thing. So the more information that we have about a child, it will also it will always help with development mm. of their next mm. um, funded support plan. Mm. So that might be a new diagnosis or it might just be new information about what supports can help them to reach their potential. Because I think hearing is the one that our families quite often easily overlook, um, particularly mm. if it wasn't present at birth, but because of the narrower ear canals and the mm. increased secretions and increased risk affections, a lot of our little ones go on to acquire a hearing loss mm -hmm. um, through childhood. Um, but it's so easy to overlook. I think as a family, they just see it as another lot of appointments that they're going mm. to, not understanding that if it, particularly if it ends up that the child needs hearing aids, that it's really yeah. important that yeah. that... Um, yeah. information's passed on. That's right. I think whether or not that secondary diagnosis will 
translate then to additional funding or new type of support. I think either way, you should always let the early childhood partner know just so that can be at least taken into consideration. Absolutely. If the parent or carer is unsure around that new information, new new diagnosis, you can always go back to your, um, you know, your GP or your pediatrician, Mm. whoever's involved and ask them to write a letter and then pass it on to us Mm. as well. Mm. So we definitely would love that information as soon as it's known to the parent. Now that's mm. great to know. Um, I think the other thing that has probably been different in the last few years has been that most of these conversations with planners or key workers are phone-based these days, just mm. the inevitable impact of COVID. Mm. Um, is there, like, I think, and what happens, I know, for new parents who are sleep-deprived or very confused about it all is that they haven't realised that that conversation that they had was their planning yeah, conversation. Yeah. I actually hear that a lot. Um, and so then they get that plan in the mail a few weeks later and are quite shocked, um, <laughs> It's particularly if the child's still in the process of having assessments done by health professionals. Yeah. Or um, So what do you suggest in that situation if... Um, yeah. And it's a bit of a shame to hear that ha- that has happened in some cases. Mm. I suppose if you are in a situation where you receive a phone call um, to say that your plan's been approved or a budget's been mm. approved and you didn't even know that you had your planning meeting, again, that's an ideal situation to say to your key mm. worker, hey, look, I think there could have been a bit of a misunderstanding in our last conversation. Mm. Um, the parent might have thought they were just having a, you know, a bit of an informal discussion around what supports in the future might look like mm. and, um, you know, the key worker might have been sort of taken their formalised notes and entering it into the system. So mm. nothing in the NDIS is so permanent that it can't be then adjusted and, and re-altered later on. So mm. if you do see your budget and all of a sudden you think that the support's missing or um, the supports are, are, are not, uh, uh, the budget is not high enough for what you are hoping to do throughout the next 12 months or 24 months, again, just triggering that conversation and mm. letting your key worker know, um, as well as getting um, supporting documentations from health pressure. Uh, professionals in your mm. child's life if you if you mm. have been seeing them as you mentioned that example that they might still be seeing health professionals um, mm. in the hospital setting for example so mm. they can also write some supporting letters to say hey I've seen the approved mm. NDIS plan but I'd also like to recommend x y and z supports to be added yeah. so that can also be a conversation that's yeah. sort of held collaboratively by all mm. of the stakeholders. You've just reminded me of another point I think that it would be good to clarify when people do get some extra information whether it's a therapist report or it's a health assessment or whatever some families just simply upload it to the portal and and assume that it gets seen is that the case or are they better to email it through their key worker and say hey we've got this new information can it please be added to the file they certainly can upload it themselves through the portal but I would always recommend just to um, let the key worker know Mm -hmm. usually parents and carers are in regular contact with their key worker they'll have some touch points throughout the year anyway Mm -hmm. so either at the time of your next touch point if it's very soon and if it's not very soon just sending an email or a text message or a phone call just to Mm -hmm. say I've received this new occupational therapy report or I've received this new diagnosis letter from the pediatrician and Mm -hmm. I just want to forward it through to you and so that way you can just make sure the key worker uh, has their eyes on it you know in real time and Mm. then can start to consider are any new supports required or not based on the new information received yeah so it's just a way to sort of mitigate risk yeah where possible great tanya you mentioned earlier about um because of covid everything Mm. being on the phone now 
So we are trying to move back into a space and find a new normal yes. for everybody and get to more face-to-face meetings again. Mm. So that's really important. Um, so families are now presented with an option Great. because some just a phone meeting is like perfect, you yes. know? Yeah. Or, yeah, especially if you're stuck in hospital. <laughs> correct. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and sometimes that face-to-face is really wanted and, mm. and so we'll, um, mm. you know, come to the home community or you can come to our office. Mm. Um, but also in terms of the experience that some families may have had where they had a brief conversation and all of a sudden they have a plan, mm. um, that may occur with priority pathway for hearing sometimes. Mm. Mm. So that's that's a little bit of an agreement that the NDIS have where if a little person is um, diagnosed with hearing impairment, that we actually get funded plan ASAP Mm -hmm. and then it comes to the partner where the partner can sit down and actually open another plan, planning meeting, Mm -hmm. to make sure that, um, you know, it might be outside of hearing Mm -hmm. that we need to look at at other um, developmental concerns and -hmm. and things in that. So I can see where there have been times where some families may have just gone, wow, where this funding come from? I had a brief mm. phone call. That could have been mm. the hearing pathway potentially. Yeah. 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 And yeah. in that case, you will have a partner reach out to you ASAP yeah. as priority to make sure that this plan is suitable um, mm. and, and go through the finer details because mm. the funding in that plan will only be related to hearing. Yeah. But sometimes it's actually quite a lot of money. Yes. And you wouldn't be able to burn through it if you tried. Yeah. Um, particularly but then there with aren't any other goals associated to mm. the whole impact. Correct. Yeah. So then we can add new goals to that mm. and have a yes. new plan printed that actually suits that little yeah. person and yeah. everything in their life and their circumstance and the people in it. And just so from an RNN point of view, say you only had hearing or communication related goals, but actually partway through the plan, the little person needed supportive seating, you know, like it, yeah. there wouldn't be a goal associated with yeah. that. So I think that's the importance, isn't it, of having that that's follow-up right. conversation. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Is there anything we haven't covered that you would really like to cover? I think it was just worth mentioning, Tanya, you're on your earlier question around sometimes parents might have their planning meeting, uh, you know, and they might sort of not have realised or that conversation might start before they're ready. Just wanting to let the audience know that there's certainly an option that parents and carers can request a delay. So if you do receive a phone call and you might be sitting there in the inpatient ward at the hospital with your child or you might Mm -hmm. be at home and you might be unwell yourself or it could be a variety of other reasons Mm -hmm. that you can just say, hey, thanks for giving me a call, Mm -hmm. but now's actually not the best time. Yeah. Um, could you contact me again in a couple of weeks? Yeah. So I know that, um, you know, there were some myths out in the community, mm-hmm. you know, a couple of years ago when early childhood approach was first rolling out that, you know, if you miss mm-hmm. three phone calls or something like that, then you're going to miss you're out on list. your, <laughs> you're off the list. And, yeah. and that that's certainly a myth that um, yeah. we wanted to bust yeah. today that, yeah. um, you, you know, it's, there's no deadlines for yeah. these things. So, And I guess that goes along the same principles I often say to families, particularly if it was an unexpected post-birth diagnosis of Down syndrome. We often say, and often, you know, hospitals are in, in, you know, with the best of intentions saying, oh, what, but it's okay. There's this thing called the NDIS. We'll get you onto that. Sometimes the family is not ready yet to go on that journey. Um, And so we always say to families, it's okay if you need a few more months or more to really (laughs) adjust as a family to this information. And I'm glad that you brought that up, Tanya, because that relates back to one of our earlier questions around what is early intervention and, Mm. you know, and when should it start? And in some cases, 
it should start immediately if that suits the family, yeah, given the yeah. white, you know, given the context yeah. of their whole life. And in some cases, it should be delayed because mm. a parent is not yet ready mm. to talk about, you know, mm. those sort of tricky conversations around what supports yeah. should I should I be, you know, requesting from NDIS. So there's no from from our perspective, there's no specific right deadline yeah. or time, you know, timeline that you need to go mm. by. And we try to be as flexible as mm. possible mm. to meet the needs of the family. So and particularly where that time. information is still you know, that little person's picture of, of what, you mm. know, um, living with Down syndrome might be like for That's them right. is still emerging. That's so. right. Well, thank you both so much. If there's nothing further you'd like to add, we oh, might. I oh, will add help. something. Yeah. So just in terms of our program early overall, mm. um, it's not always um, NDIS funded plans that, yes, that come from yes. what we do. So I just want to um, make it known that a little person doesn't need a um, diagnosis of a disability to get support from us. So if you're listening, have another child or a friend or family or a neighbour um, and you know that they have a child and they have some concerns about their development, no matter what that is, we'd really encourage them to give us a phone call because right. there's lots of other avenues of support um, yep. that we can deliver. Yep. Um, yep. Um, and you also don't need a diagnosis to get um, a funded plan Mm. Um, in early childhood up to the age of six. Absolutely. Right. There is like, uh, yeah, we've been focusing on, on little Down ones with Down syndrome, syndrome but, yeah. but yeah, absolutely. That's a really important message. So thank you for sharing that. Um, and I think one of the misconceptions about the NDIS because of the name, the National Disability Insurance Scheme, people often think that you must, my child must have mm. a formalised disability diagnosed before I can access services. And that again is a very common myth. Mm. So in particular, in the early childhood approach, your child might have a diagnosed disability or they might just have developmental um, developmental concerns throughout any of the developmental domains and they might just want to access you know a couple of months of support through our um, allied health team there mm. so we have OTs, speeches, physios and early childhood educators so we will work in the best practice principles and we'll come into your home or mm. we'll support um, provide support in any of the natural settings such as childcare or whatever really suits the family to provide some parent capacity building mm. so so um, as Kelly mentioned, we just don't want people to think that they should only be referred to our service so their child no. can receive a funded plan, although mm. that funded plan is available for kids with and without a diagnosis. Mm. There's also that um, option of receiving some supports and services through our organisation directly. Yep. So um, what you will receive in that service known as early supports will look different from each childhood partner depending on your geographical location cool. um, but that's something that you should definitely get in touch with your early child early childhood partner about and just have a discussion around mm. what your concerns are in regards to your child's development mm. and then they will guide you around the best avenue of support from yep. there and check out our Facebook page because we have webinars that anyone can jump so into. even if you're not eligible from a residency point of view, um, webinars would be okay to watch? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Again, things like that will depend on your early childhood partner at the yes. Benevolent Society. Yeah. We offer, for example, um, you know, play groups out in the community as well as parent information sessions. Yeah. So you don't have to be receiving an NDIS-funded plan to access these to other support. services. But if you would like more information, please just do call our um, intake team and we're happy to provide you with some information from there given your yeah, individual circumstance. Wonderful. We'll put the link to your service but also <laughs> where people can find on the page of the NDS where their particular area throughout Queensland where their early childhood partner is located. We'll Great. put that in there. Thank 
you, ladies. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Tanya. If you would like to hear any episodes from previous seasons or more information on any subject relating to Down syndrome, visit our website, www.downsyndrome.org.au forward slash Queensland. That's www.downsyndrome.org.au forward slash QLD. You have been listening to the Now and the Future podcast. For more information about this episode and many other topics related to Down syndrome, please visit the Down syndrome Queensland website at downsyndrome.org.ie slash QRD. Down syndrome Queensland, supporting people with Down syndrome now and into the future.